ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد so we were looking at last time the importance the salaf they gave to preserving the sunnah of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and we mentioned some of the narrations and some of the methods that were employed or some of the methods that were apparent from the salaf So during the time of the companions we mentioned one of the things that clearly used to happen was that the companions they witnessed the revelation coming down they were with the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam at the time when he was receiving the revelation on the whole doesn't mean that every companion was with the prophet every time a new revelation came but they were there living at the same time living at the time of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam when the revelation was coming upon him and so if they ever had any questions any queries then they would go back directly to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam for the answers to those questions and also they used to make sure as the second point the first point that they took the revelation or they took the explanation of the revelation directly from the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam the second point that they used to make sure they stick to the sunnah as accurately and as closely as possible so they would do as the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam would do and we mentioned the example from al bukhari of ibn umar where he said ittakhadha rasulullah rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam khatama min dhahab fattakhadha an-nas khawatima min dhahab thumma nabadhahu an-nabiy sallallahu alaihi wasallam wa qala inni lan albasahu abada fanabadha an-nas khawatimahum that initially originally the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam used to wear a ring of gold that he used to wear a ring made of gold so the people began wearing rings made of gold then the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam threw his away and said i will never wear it again gold and so the people they threw away their rings immediately also following the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam the companions threw away their rings also in another narration we had mentioned from the hadith of abu sa'id al-khudri in abu dawud about the time when the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was praying with his shoes on and then in the middle of the prayer he took his shoes off and so everybody behind him in the middle of the prayer took their shoes off at the end the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam asked them what 
was the reason why you took your shoes off? They said, because we saw you take your shoes off, so we took our shoes off. They would follow him exactly. But then the Prophet ﷺ explained to them, it's because Jibreel had come to him during the prayer to inform him that there was some impurity on his shoes. That's why he removed them. There was some impurity upon them. Otherwise, we know the ruling, if there is no impurity on your shoes, it is permissible to pray with your shoes on. It's permissible and sunnah to do so. Of course, you have to take into consideration the mosques and the carpets, etc. So you wouldn't necessarily do it there. But if you're praying in your home or you're praying outside, it is permissible to pray with your shoes on as the Prophet ﷺ clearly did and the companions clearly did. Then we come to another narration here now showing how much they used to strive to make sure they take that knowledge from the Prophet ﷺ. It's mentioned regarding Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu يقول فيما أخرجه عنه البخاري الإمام البخاري reported this narration that عمر بن الخطاب رضي الله عنه said كنت أنا وجار لي من الأنصار في بني أمية ابن زيد وهي من عوالي المدينة كنا نتناوب النزول على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ينزل يوما وأنزل يوما فإذا نزلت جئته بخبر ذلك اليوم وإذا نزل فعل مثل ذلك He said that I and a neighbor of mine from the Ansar from Bani Umayyah ibn Zayd that we used to take turns going to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam because they used to look after sheep and they used to have those duties and tasks and they couldn't just be free every day, all day to go and be with the Prophet ﷺ and learn and study all day, every day. So he said, in order to balance out the responsibilities that they couldn't get out of, that they decided, he and his neighbor, a plan, a schedule whereby they would take turns going to the Prophet ﷺ. So one day Umar ibn al-Khattab would go, and his neighbor would look after all of the, the farm and the sheep and those various things, his own and Umar ibn al-Khattab's. Then the next day, Umar ibn al-Khattab would stay behind, and the neighbor would get his chance to go and sit with the Prophet ﷺ. Whichever one had his turn to go and sit with the Prophet ﷺ, that evening he would come back with all of that knowledge he had gained and pass it on to the neighbor. The next day when the other one went, he would come back with all of the knowledge of that day and convey it to his neighbor. So in that way, neither of them were missing out anything. One day personally they would go, and the second day they would get all the feedback 
and all of the notes and all of the updates of that knowledge and hadith from their neighbor. This is how they used to strive. Not to just say, I got work on, I can't attend the class, I got this responsibility, I got that responsibility. And the people make their excuses not to attend and not to do anything. The Sahaba, they had responsibilities just as we have responsibilities. They had more, greater responsibilities than we do. And yet they used to make the time, and they used to make the effort, and they used to make these schedules, whatever it took, to make sure they could go and learn from the Prophet wasallam. So that is an example that we should all take. An example that we should all learn from. An example in how the companions used to strive and they never allowed any reason to just come in the way. They never allowed these kinds of reasons. I got work on, I got this on, I got that on. I can't attend the class, I can't keep up. That's a weak attitude. We shouldn't have these weak attitudes to things. We should have a strong attitude. If you seriously want to study and learn and benefit, learn the religion for yourselves and learn it and teach it to your families, then we have to prioritize. We have to make sure that we prioritize this knowledge, prioritize the gatherings of knowledge, prioritize learning the Qur'an and the Sunnah, and not to allow our work and responsibilities to completely overcome us such that we can't get out of anything and we can never learn. That is not how you want to be. And if a person really strives, there are always ways. There are ways, as they have that saying, where there's a will, there's a way. If you really want to make it happen, you can really strive and try and work things out where you can. Then make time for classes, for knowledge. And that is how we should be. The Salaf didn't just say the responsibility, this, that, the other, I can't do it. They worked around it. They worked out ways so they could continue with that knowledge. There's another narration, another example. This will show you how keen they were for knowledge. That they didn't waste any time. Straight away going to the Prophet Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam for that knowledge and for answers about their religion. There's another narration here in Al-Bukhari as well. Hadith regarding Uqbah ibn al-Harith. Uqbah ibn al-Harith, he mentions, or it is mentioned in the narration, وَزَوْجَتَهُ عُقْبَ ibn al-Harith When he was young, he had a wet nurse. Somebody who used to breastfeed him when he was a, a baby, when he was young. There was another woman who used to breastfeed him. Witnesses. When he grew up and got married, the woman he got married to, some woman from amongst them, got married to her. Later on, after they were married, an elderly woman once saw them or became aware of who he'd married. And she said to him that you, to Uqba ibn al-Harith, when you were young, I used to breastfeed you. 
And this woman who you've married, she was also one of the children under my responsibility when years ago I used to breastfeed her too. This woman you've ended up marrying, she was also breastfed by that same woman. So this elderly woman told them, both of you, basically when you were young, when you were babies, when you were children, both of you I used to breastfeed you. You were under my care and you were under my care. So is it permissible to marry a woman if you and her were both breastfed by the same witness? As soon as Uqba ibn al-Harith found out this, he needed to know the answer. He needed to find out straight away what's the ruling. Because normally that type of breastfeeding, it means you are mahram to that woman now. So what happened when he found out? It mentions rakiba min fawrihi. Straight away. No time wasting, no next week, the week after. Straight away. He got on to his riding animal and he headed to Medina. Because he was in Mecca at the time. And this was after the hijrah. The Prophet ﷺ was now in Medina. So he went straight away. Straight away. On his riding animal and he headed to Medina. Until... قَاصِدًا الْمَدِينَةِ حَتَّى بَلَغَ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ Until he arrived to the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم in Medina. فَسَأَلَهُ عَنْ حُكْمِ اللَّهِ فِي مَنْ تَزَوَّجَ مْرَأَةً لَا يَعْلَمُ أَنَّهَا أُخْتُهُ مِنَ الرِّضَعِ And he asked the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم what is the ruling on this situation? A man has ended up marrying a woman not knowing that both he and this woman were breastfed by the same wet nurse when they were younger. What is the ruling on that? So, he told the Prophet ﷺ, this is the situation. I've now found out years later, this woman has told us, told us that she breastfed me and my wife. So the Prophet ﷺ said, فَقَالَ النَّبِيُّ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمُ كَيْفَ وَقَدْ That what can be said now when the ruling has been given basically? The ruling is it's impermissible. It is impermissible. You cannot marry somebody who has been breastfed by the same wet nurse. You are... As they say in the language, like technically brothers and sisters now, you are technically in that different ruling now, like maharim now, you can't marry that woman. So the Prophet ﷺ said, what can be said now? What can be said now? The ruling has already been given for that, that it's impermissible. The point of the narration is what though? The haste, the haste or the eagerness the eagerness and the enthusiasm of the companions, as soon as this woman told him that I breastfed you and your wife, straight away he went from Makkah to Medina. It's like here to London, 200 miles. Straight away he went to find the Prophet ﷺ and ask him. That's how keen they were, how much enthusiasm they had to make sure they were practicing their religion properly. This is... These are 
examples of what they did to show you how this sunnah was preserved. They went to the Prophet ﷺ. They traveled. They went asking their questions, asking the fatwa for their religious issues. They used to go and find out. No laziness, no, it doesn't matter. It mattered. And they used to go and they used to find out. Another thing actually, not just the Prophet ﷺ, but another thing which is mentioned, is that the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, they used to receive a lot of questions too. The wives of the Prophet ﷺ used to receive a lot of questions too. Why would the wives of the Prophet ﷺ receive a lot of questions? Maybe it's about women's issues. Exactly. Because the wives of the Prophet ﷺ will have a very detailed knowledge about the Prophet ﷺ, what he does, what he says, how he is at home. They'll know all of those things that everybody else won't know. They are his wives, they live with him. So now if some of the women, for example, wanted to know about women's issues, they would go ask the wives of the Prophet ﷺ because they are his wives. And obviously they will be asking the Prophet directly what to do with this and with that. So they had knowledge about those things that were going on in the home, how the Prophet would behave and what he would tell them, what he would say. They would see all of those things from the Prophet that outsiders don't. So as a consequence, many women used to go to the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, and they used to ask about their affairs of the religion, maybe ask about periods and period blood and those types of things for the women. They would go and ask the wives of the Prophet ﷺ about these affairs. And that's why as well it's mentioned by Aisha radiallahu anha. She said, نِعْمَ نِسَاءَ الْأَنصَارِ she said, how good are the women of the Ansar? لَمْ يَكُنْ يَمْنَعْهُنَّ حَيَاؤُهُنَّ مِنْ أَنْ يَسْأَلْنَّ عَنْ أُمُورِ دِينِهِنَّ That their shyness never used to prevent them from asking about the affairs of their religion. About period blood, about uh, vaginal uh, uh, discharge, these types of things, intimate affairs. But she said, how good are the women of the Ansar? Shyness about these things, it didn't stop them from learning about them. Because those things have an impact on your worship. Is this discharge impure? Is it pure? Can you pray? Can you not? If it gets on your clothes, are your clothes pure? Can you pray in them? Can you not? Lots of questions. So she said, they are good, the women of the Ansar. Because those issues, normally you have shyness about them. But she said they good. Shyness didn't stop them from finding out about the rulings in the religion, about those things. And so, they preserved the sunnah in this way. These are examples. They went and found out the details. Now when we have all of these books and it tells you about those types of issues. <coughs> tells you about the periods of the women. Uh, and the different types of blood, when blood comes out, when it doesn't, and then 
after the period if other blood comes out, if it goes in your clothes, all of these things, they are there in the hadith, so that now women have no problem with those issues. If anything like that happens, then you can check the hadith, you can check the sunnah, it tells you, tells you about the period and what if the period goes on longer than normal and all of these details are there because the women, they used to go and ask the wives of the Prophet ﷺ who used to in turn find out the knowledge from the Prophet ﷺ. These are all means by which that sunnah was preserved. فَكَانَتْ النِّسَاءَ تَذْهَبُ إِلَى زَوْجَاتِ النَّبِيِّ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمْ لِيَسْأَلْنَهُنَّ عَنْ أُمُورِ دِينِهِنَّ So the women used to go to the wives of the Prophet wasallam to ask them about the affairs of their religion. Sometimes they would go and ask the Prophet wasallam directly to فَإِذَا كَانَ هُنَالِكَ مَا يَمْنَعُ النَّبِي صلى الله عليه وسلم مِنَ التَّصْرِيحِ لِلْمَرْأَةِ بِالْحُكْمِ الشَّرْعِ أَمَرَ إِحْدَى زَوْجَاتِهِ أَنْ تُفْهِمَهَا إِيَّهِ If sometimes they came to the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم asking about some of those types of affairs, periods and blood and things, and there was some reason why the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم couldn't explain that to them, then he would tell one of his wives to go and detail those issues and explain them. So the wives sometimes would go and explain to the women about those intimate affairs of period and vaginal discharge, etc. They would go and explain those things to them. Amma. So, up to there, that gives you an idea of how the companions behaved. They didn't just allow things to pass by. They used to go and find out and learn and memorize. Whenever any issue came up, they would go to the Prophet ﷺ and ask. There was never any delay like that. They would go and find out what was going on and what the ruling is. You remember that narration about the sailors? When the sailors, they used to go out on their ships... Obviously the ocean is salt water, it's not drinking water. So when the sailors go out on long trips, they used to take big barrels of fresh drinking water. Obviously those barrels are limited in how many they can take on their ships, especially if it's a long voyage. So they came to ask the Prophet ﷺ, is it permissible when we go out on these long voyages, that we save the fresh water barrels just for drinking purposes and we use the seawater for wudu. Because that doesn't make a difference. You can't drink it, that's a problem, salt water. But using the seawater for wudu, that's okay, can be done. So they went to the Prophet asking, can we do that? Can we just save the fresh barrels of drinking water to drink? Because before they would make wudu with it as well, and then those barrels run out very quick. So they said, what if we just keep that for drinking, and then we collect seawater as we're out there on the voyage, and then use that for wudu, for ghusl, maybe even for cooking purposes in certain dishes. Can we do that or not? So the Prophet ﷺ told them, هُوَ الطَّهُورُ مَا أُهُوَ الْحِلُّ It is pure. 
The sea water, the ocean water is pure. Meaning, yes, you can use that. Get that water and use it for wudu when you're on your voyage on the ships. Use it for ghusl. Use the sea water, it's pure. Why did the companions even come and ask that question? Fresh water, sea water, it's all water, isn't it? Why would they even ask that question? It's all water. Fresh water, sea water, it's water, isn't it? Why would they even go and ask the Prophet if it's allowed to make wudu in the sea water? Why would they not be sure if it's pure or not and whether you can use it or not? Why? It's water, isn't it? Why can't he drink it? Because it's salt water. So because it's salt water, which is obviously different to fresh water, they thought, let's just be careful and find out if the ruling is the same or (coughs) if it's different. Because the water is a bit different. It's salt water, not the same as fresh water. There is that little difference to it. You can't drink it. It's clearly a different taste, clearly different makeup to the water. So to that level, they would be precise with the sunnah. To that level, it's water, water. But they would say, no, salt water is different. Let's go and make sure, are we allowed to make wudu with it? Is it the same ruling as fresh water or not? They went to the Prophet ﷺ to find out. And he confirmed to them it's the same, it's okay. You can use that salt water for wudu and ghusl. But the point is, look at how precise the companions were. This sunnah hasn't been preserved just generally. It's been preserved precisely. Precisely those narrations, the sunnah, the hadith. Precisely the companions as, as they did. How they would go and find out details about things, specifics where they were unsure. But then what about after the death of the Prophet ﷺ? That was all things that they did whilst the Prophet was alive. What did they do? What did the Salaf do after the death of the Prophet ﷺ to maintain the accuracy of that sunnah and to maintain its preservation thereafter? Because once the Prophet had passed away, the option of now going to ask him for clarification on anything, or going to ask him about a hadith, is no longer an option. That option is all gone now after the death of the Prophet ﷺ. So then, there would have had to have been other things that came into the picture. Other methods that they now had to start employing as well, to make sure the sunnah remains preserved Precise, maintained. So what did they do after the death of the Prophet Sallallahu حفظها والتثبت من ذلك حتى كان أحدهم يرحل في الحديث الواحد مسافة شهر ليتثبت من حفظه وكذلك كتابتها في الصحف والأجزاء ثم نشرها بين الناس وغير ذلك من المجالات After the death of the Prophet ﷺ one of the key things that they focused on was memorization 
to make sure their memory was strong of the narrations. Because now the Prophet ﷺ has passed away. You can't just go and ask if you forget. So they made sure their memorization was strong. How could they make sure of that? They would go to other companions who had memorized the same hadith, to ask them and to check with them. So they would go around, companions, traveling to other companions, other companions who knew those same hadith, so they could check them with them and revise them with them. Sometimes we're going to come to some of these narrations, companions would travel for weeks and months to get to another companion just for the sake of one single hadith. They didn't think, well, it's only that one hadith, it's not a big deal. For one hadith, they might travel a month to get to another companion who's living in another country to ask him just that one hadith. So they can listen to it, memorize it, and get it firm. So one of the key things they focused on was making sure their memorization was firm from what they had learned from the Prophet ﷺ. On top of that, to do that, like we said, traveling started to become a big thing. Because after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, the companions obviously spread out during the time of Abu Bakr and mostly time of Umar ibn al-Khattab. Many other countries entered into Islam. Islam spread. Companions spread. They went to the different Muslim countries and settled in the different countries. So now companions were all over the place in different countries and different areas. They weren't all in Mecca and Medina now. They were everywhere. In Iraq and in this place and that place around the, the Arabian Peninsula. So now if somebody wanted to find out a particular hadith and it was a particular companion who knew it, who was in Iraq at the time, then you got to get onto your riding animal and go down to Iraq. That's the only means of communication. No other means of communication in those days. You get onto your riding animal and you go to Iraq and you meet that companion and then you ask him these narrations that you need to have. Others, maybe they were in other areas of Sham. They had spread to other countries, other areas. They would travel. Traveling became a big thing. They, uh, after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, in the time of the Salaf. <clears throat> Another aspect which started to begin or occur a lot more, was that they started writing down those hadith. They started writing down a lot more. Even though during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, they had them written down too. They used to write them down in those days too. It wasn't written down in big books like this. It was small scrolls. One scroll, you might have some hadith on it. Another scroll, you got some more on it. Another few pieces of papers, you have some others on it. There was no such thing as books bound together. But there were parchments and papers and scrolls and bits and bobs like that where they had all these things written down, hadith and Qur'an, ayat, etc. So, making sure of their memorization, traveling to check hadith, and writing down to record those hadith and have them written down. وَكُلُّ ذَلِكَ وَفْقَ مَنْهِجْ عَمَلِي وَعِلْمِي يُمْكِنُ الْإِشَارَ إِلَى مُلَامِحِهِ فِيمَا يَلِي so we can summarize what the companions did after the death of the Prophet ﷺ in what follows. استشعر الصحابة الكرام رضي الله عنهم عظم 
المسؤولية الملقاة على عواتقهم لحفظ الشريعة كتابا وسنة وتطبيقا The companions obviously felt and recognized that great responsibility on their shoulders now to maintain the sunnah and preserve the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. They were the students of the Prophet, they learned from the Prophet after his death, then they recognized and felt that very large responsibility on their shoulders to make sure that the sunnah remains preserved and precise and intact. And not only to preserve it and make sure it's kept there, but to actually spread it and teach the people to make sure it's maintained and preserved accurately, but then also to make sure it is disseminated and conveyed and spread and taught to the people too. And that they recognized and knew was a responsibility upon them. It was a responsibility upon them to preserve the sunnah and to convey it now. To carry on teaching it to the people and spread it. They knew that was a trust upon their shoulders now. And they, in reality, knew that this was a responsibility that they had on their shoulders, they had been selected for. They were the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. The responsibility was upon them now. They were the companions. So the responsibility was upon them. And there are narrations from the Prophet ﷺ that highlight why they experienced and felt this responsibility and knew they had this responsibility. For example, the hadith, بَلِّغُوا عَنِّي وَلَوْ آيَةً وَحَدِّثُوا عَنْ بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ وَلَا حَرَجٍ بَلِّغُوا عَنِّي وَلَوْ آيَةً Narrate from me even if it is an ayah. Meaning that knowledge you've gained from me, then teach that and narrate it even if it is an ayah. Meaning don't belittle knowledge. All of the knowledge, preserve it, learn it and teach it. This narration does not mean that an ignorant person tries to give da'wah as some people try to use it for. It doesn't mean that if you know nothing, that you now go and start trying to give da'wah in town center or uh, on YouTube or something else. You have to have knowledge. Al-ilmu qabla al-qawli wal-amal. But the point of this narration is that don't belittle knowledge. Even if you go and give da'wah with a little bit of that knowledge you have, the knowledge you do have, you have to have it before you can give it, then do so. So the companions recognized they had to teach that knowledge now that they had gained from the Prophet ﷺ. And there are other narrations too. The Prophet ﷺ said, نَظَّرَ اللَّهُمْ رَأَنْ سَمِعَ مَقَالَتِي وَوَعَاهَا فَأَدَّاهَا كَمَا سَمِعَهَا فَرُبَّ مُبَلَّغْ أَوْعَى مِنْ سَامِعْ That may Allah make radiant, bright, the face of a man who hears my statement and understands it, and then conveys it as he 
heard it. That you convey that narration, that hadith, that knowledge exactly and precisely as it came from the Prophet, then may Allah brighten your faces, the one who does that. So again, that was a great encouragement for the companions to make sure that they conveyed that sunnah. But at the same time, in conveying it, they knew they had to be absolutely accurate in how they convey it. And this is the key point as well. They didn't just go and narrate anything that they vaguely remembered. wasn't like that. They narrated what they knew absolutely and had memorized properly. They wouldn't just go narrate generally what they remember, something they remember vaguely, mixed up, not like that. They narrated what they had properly understood and memorized. Because they knew if they go start narrating something which ends up wrong, they knew the narrations of the Prophet ﷺ about that. مَنْ كَذِبَ عَلَيَّ مُتَعَمِّدًا فَلِتَبَوَّأَ مَقْعَدَهُ مِنَ النَّارِ Whomsoever lies upon me on purpose, then let him take his place in the fire. The companions knew they can't just take chances and vaguely narrate something and just generally what they remember because it could end up in lying upon the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet said, whoever does that, let him take his place in the fire. So they knew they had to be precise in what they narrate. Absolutely critical to ensure that the sunnah was preserved. In another narration, كَفَى بِالْمَرْءِ كَذِبًا أَنْ يُحَدِّثَ بِكُلِّ مَا سَمِعْ Enough to say, or sufficient as lying, is that a person narrates everything he hears. Anything and everything you hear, you go and tell other people, I heard this and I heard that. Anything and everything you hear. And maybe half of those things that you hear are just plain lies. The Prophet said, that's considered lying, basically. But if you just go and narrate anything and everything you hear, don't even have any idea whether it's true, it's false, it's right, it's wrong, just go tell everything you hear. Then that's like lying. You've got no idea whether it's the truth, whether it's right, whether it's proven. Anything you hear from people, just go and tell other people about it. Wrong. Companions never did that. They didn't just go around narrating anything and everything. Only what they knew properly memorized firm. لِذَٰلِكَ كُلِّهِ كَانَ الصَّحَابَ رِضْوَانُ اللَّهِ عَلَيْهِ مَعَ هَرْسِهِمْ عَلَىٰ تَبْلِيغِ دِينِ اللَّهِ لِلْأُمَّةِ شَدِيدِيَ التَّحَرِّ So because of this type of thing, the companions gave extra focus to making sure what they narrated, they were positive of. Memorized and they knew properly. In fact, it mentions... From Anas radiyallahu anhu, one of the companions, he said, لَوْلَا أَنِّي أَخْشَى أَنْ أُخْطِئَ لَحَدَّثْتُكُمْ بِأَشْيَا سَمِعْتُهَا مِنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ أَوْ قَالَهَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمْ وَذَلِكَ أَنِّي سَمِعْتُهُ يَقُولْ مَنْ كَذَبَ عَلَيَّ مُتَعَمِّدًا فَلِيَتَبَوَّأَ مَقْعَدَهُ مِنَ I would make a mistake, then I would have narrated to you many other things that I heard from the Prophet ﷺ, uh, uh, or that he used to say. Was it not for the fact that I fear a mistake? Meaning, these were things that he wasn't positive of exactly how it was. 
there were things that he knew, but he he didn't have that confidence of absolute precision in those things. He said, that's why those things, I don't narrate them. If, was it not? Was it not for my fear of making a mistake? Then I would have. Then I would have. If I wasn't bothered, right, wrong, however it comes out, I would have just said it. But they knew they can't do that. They can't just narrate anything and everything if they're not absolutely certain of it. Because then he said, I heard the Prophet say, Whomsoever lies upon me on purpose, let him take his place in the fire. So now if they started narrating things that they weren't sure of, then it's as good as almost lying. You don't even know if what you're saying is accurate. You don't even know if what you're saying is the narration of the Prophet like that. They didn't take chances like that. So nobody can say now the hadith we have are just what the companions generally remembered. Not at all. The hadith we have now are accurate what the companions were sure of and what they narrated from the Prophet ﷺ. And Ibn Sirin said about Anas as well, كان أنس قليل الحديث عن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم وكان إذا حدث عن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قال أو كما قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم that Anas, he only used to narrate little. He used to narrate only a little bit. Not just everything and anything, but only a little bit. Because he knew of those narrations we mentioned, and whenever he did used to narrate anything, he would always add on, أَوْ كَمَا قَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وسلم, Or as the messenger said, just in case there was the odd word maybe that changed. And even then, it comes in the sciences of hadith, it's not a major issue in terms of narrating by meaning. Because sometimes you may change the phrase of something, but the point is exactly the same. You say, for example, there was an accident and uh, three people died. You then come and tell somebody else there was an accident, three people lost their lives. I've now changed the exact words I heard from the person who told me about the accident. The guy who told me said to me exactly, there was an accident, three people died. That's the words he used. I've now come to you and said, I've just been told, he told me there was an accident and three people lost their lives. The point of what he said and the point of what I've said are both exactly the same. You have understood whether I say three died, three lost their lives, Two different phrases, it means three people died, passed away, lost their lives, whatever phrase. It means the exact same thing. So sometimes that can happen. Where the companions may have narrated a hadith, where the phrase may have been slightly different to the exact word the Prophet used, but like we've just seen in that example there, it makes no difference, doesn't change the hadith at all. So that isn't a problem. The scholar said if that happens, that's okay. Because it doesn't change anything. It's just another phrase which means exactly the same thing. So that isn't a problem. But still though, the companions would strive to make sure it was as accurate as possible. They would narrate as they knew it. And they wouldn't take chances or risks in anything else. We'll stop at that point for today. uh, And we'll carry on with the next section uh, next week, which is basically going to be uh, the next stage. We'll just round off this companion stage, 
Then we're going to move on to the next stage. The students of the companions. What did they do after the companions passed away now? The next generation now, the students of the companions, what did they do in that second generation to preserve the sunnah and to carry on its uh, 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 maintaining it and having it accurate and memorized? What things did they do at that time? That's what we're going to move on to next week, inshallah. Approximately the same time after Maghrib, 7 o'clock, 10 past 7, inshallah ta'ala. So, we'll round off on that for today then. وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين. Any questions or anything else? Oh. During the Khilafah episode, did the companion realize that they should be recording? And I know you went through it in detail. Or were they just practicing at that time? Did they realize that this knowledge would be valuable later on? Absolutely. Absolutely they knew that. They knew when they were learning that from the Prophet ﷺ that this is valuable knowledge which needs to carry on being passed on. They knew that. That's why they would memorize carefully. That's why they would go and travel to other companions. Even when, this is something we'll <coughs> discuss later as well. <coughs> Sometimes you might have a student of one of the companions a student of one of the companions. This student narrates a hadith from a companion. That companion narrates it from another companion who narrates it from the Prophet ﷺ. The Salaf didn't like that. Why? Because there's a like a double section in the chain. A student, a, a tabi'i, from the companion to another companion to the Prophet ﷺ. Why can't we just go from the companion to the Prophet ﷺ? So they would try to go and find the companions or the narrators where they could then bypass and make the chain short. It's like, you told me from him, from him, from him that there's an accident. So instead of these three people from him who saw the accident, why don't I just ring him and find out directly what happened? Isn't that stronger and better than going through him, who told him, who found out from him, who found out from him? It's a lot better if I can just contact him direct. I'll get much more precise details than through three people coming to me. To that level, they knew of the importance. They would, If they had from this, this, this to that person, they would try and find where does he live? Which country? So they could bypass this and get to the source of the knowledge straight away. So there's lots of things like that. But the companions, they knew of the value of the knowledge. They were memorizing it, learning it. They knew they had to pass it on and teach it. They knew that, yes. Just the last one. Mm. The last point you covered. Go on. About the words being very simple. Mm. So the, the hadith are there. Not just the subject is, is that matter. But the words themselves are as accurate as they could be. Absolutely, the majority of the hadith are exact. But this is just sometimes the scholars said there may be some narration where the phrase is slightly different, but it makes no difference to the meaning. But the majority, the narrations, the hadith, they are as were memorized from the Prophet. And the Prophet was given Jawami al Kalim that he used to speak in a very precise way. With lots of meanings. A hadith could be maybe four lines long. 
And if we do a class on it, it takes us one hour to explain four lines. That's how the Prophet used to speak. So those words are the words of the Prophet ﷺ. But this topic of ar-riwaya bil-ma'na as it's known as, inshallah, we'll, we'll touch upon it later on as well. So we'll round off on that for today then. Next week at 7 again, inshallah ta'ala.